everyone, and welcome back to Season 3 of Everyday Theology. We're super stoked to be back, to have a great lineup of guests, some people really excited to talk with. And when I say we, if you're a follower of Everyday Theology, if you listen to our teasers, you know that by we I mean I've got a new co-host, and that co-host is Chris Green. He's going to be joining me for Season 3 to be a consistent voice and having these conversations. He's brilliant. He's one of my favorite dialogue partners and all things theological. And so I'm excited to have him join me as we engage with some theologians, with some pastors, with some people in other disciplines and other fields, some creatives and thinkers. We're just real excited about having some great conversations, thinking about how theology engages with our everyday life. You might also notice that the podcasts look longer this season, and it's not because the the interviews are any longer than they have been in the past, but actually Chris and I have taken the time to just have some separate kind of conversations outside of our interviews. That could be conversations about something that happened in the podcast. It might be about a movie. It might be about art. It might be just about kind of pop Christian culture. Who knows? Chris and I, we... we talk a lot and we can engage in a lot of conversations in thinking about kind of our church world and our theological world and kind of what's going on. So we invite you to kind of stick around and just hear those conversations. They're a bit more open and a bit more conversational as it's just me and him having conversations, sometimes disagreeing, sometimes agreeing, joking around and having fun as we are kind of in season three together. So I'm hoping that we hope that you're going to enjoy this season. We've had so much fun recording it so far, and we're just so excited to be back and to be with you again. So welcome and join along as we explore in season three of Everyday Theology. All right, on Everyday Theology, we have a great guest, and I say we because as we've been saying, the teasers, uh, I don't even know when this one's going to come out in our season, but I'm saying it again. Chris is now joining me as a co-host. So Chris, I'm going to throw it to you to introduce our guest because you and him are friends. I like to think that we're friends too, but you are definitely closer friends and and much more uh, have worked together a lot more closely, and I'm sure everyone will find out why here soon enough. But Chris, yeah, why don't you introduce our guest for us, man? Yeah, so this is Andrew Ray Williams. He's a pastor and a professor. He's just, and this is the reason for him being the guest today, he's just finished not only his PhD on water baptism and the Pentecostal tradition, but a book on Clark Pinnock's theology, which will be the focus, as I said, of our conversation today. I know Andrew because we worked together on his PhD project, which you you did your Viva, Andrew, just a couple months ago, right? I mean, what? Yeah, what, it wasn't long ago. It was uh, in December 2020. Oh, wow. It's been longer than I thought. I mean, in, in the pandemic, time has just melted together for me. So I have no sense of. <laughs> yes. You everything. and everyone else, Chris. 20 years ago. Right? <laughs> I don't even remember last year, to be honest, at all. Absolutely. Absolutely right. So that's how we got to know each other working closely as, as you worked through that, which is now published. That's what I'm thinking about the book. The book just came out and virtually the same time this book on Pinnock came out. So I want to jump right to it then and ask you a question about you. I'm sure later in the podcast, we'll talk about Clark Pinnock's theology, but I want to ask you a question about what the process of writing this book 
and grappling with Clark's theology, what that was like for you? I mean, what surprised you? What caught you off guard? What moved you? I mean, talk to us a little bit about what this experience was, because it's a different project, right, from working on the PhD or writing a paper or preaching a sermon. So, yeah, talk to us a little bit about what how this has formed you. Absolutely. Well, thanks for letting me on, uh, Aaron and Chris. Um, actually, the the reason that I actually dedicated the book to you, Chris, is because I found out you were the co-host now for Everyday Theology. Oh, I'm such a fan. That was leverage. I, like I, just, I just had to do it. So Now I um, just feel completely left out, though. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's actually, dedicating the next one to you, Aaron. Oh, perfect. <laughs> there we right. go. Cheers to that. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, it was it was really a, a great, fun project. It was my pandemic book. Um, in addition to finishing uh, my my uh, my my thesis, I was uh, really digging into Clark Pinnock. And um, one of the one of the reasons I did was because um, Clark had kind of always been a dialogue partner on various projects that I had done. Um, I, I first encountered him in seminary and uh, he was so eclectic, so ecumenical, so provocative, uh, so conversational. Was it, was yeah. it Mark, was it Mark Cartlidge who had you read him? Who, who had you read? Actually, it was funny. I, I had um, uh, a, a professor, my first, he was an, actually an adjunct mm-hmm. that taught my first Christian theology class at Regent. Um, and I, first encountered parts, just sections of flame of love. And, um, really just, he just kind of captured me at that moment. Um, and I ended up, uh, doing, I I did study under Mark with my, my master's thesis at Regent. And I looked at, uh, ecological theology and, um, with, and Clark Pennick kind of talks a little bit about some of that. So, um, and then of course moved to baptism and, um, he was kind of a dialogue partner there. He was, he's unique in the fact that he, as an evangelical, um, has sort of somewhat of a sacramental um, understanding of of, the, of of baptism, and so I never really dug that deep into his theology. I, I knew, of course, he was, um, you know, someone who uh, changed his mind a lot uh, about various topics and got a lot of heat for it. Um, but you know, back to the original question, I think one of the things that was fun about this book is sort of getting to know. Clark in a sense. Um, I think anybody who's written a book on anyone, whether they're a theologian or not, you start to kind of um, feel like you know this person a little bit. Um, And that was a really fun thing to be able to get to do. I read a lot of stuff that I never read of his um, because I tried to just look at everything. And even like obscure little journal articles I'd never heard of and these journals I'd never heard of, um, some various book chapters. So it was it was really fun kind of just digging into this thinker that, you know, obviously I appreciated, but I never really dug into as deeply as I obviously have now. Was there any part of it that kind of grieved you or shocked you or troubled you, or was it mostly a pretty pleasant experience? Overall, it was pretty pleasant. Although I would say that um, I did read, it was a wonderful book um, by Barry Callen called Journey Towards Renewal. And it's actually um, documents Clark's journey um, throughout his theological career. There's interviews with him. And one of the things that did trouble me um, is just how personal some of the attacks um, were, love, uh, the way in which some of these 
these attacks were leveled at him uh, because of precisely because he changed his mind and, and, and on the things that he changed his mind on. Um, so th- that itself was did trouble me and, and actually made me begin to think a little bit more about sort of the state of evangelicalism, which, of course, is something that everybody's talking about right now. Um, but Clark was one of these guys who kind of began to crack that open in a sense. Um, one of the one of the theologians who did early. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's something that uh, did did trouble me. And I think kind of relates to today. Yeah. Andrew. Maybe help set the stage on that that idea uh, of how this troubled you in terms of like for our listeners who you know may just be listening, never read Clark, don't know anything about him, but maybe give us some background on Clark because I mean clearly we're having this conversation because when Chris and I mentioned this idea of Clark Pinnock, we were both like yes. We love him for better, for worse, for whatever theological things we might like or dislike about him. We just love him. Uh, but you now you're over here saying people were hating on him, right, and attacking him. But maybe set the stage on who he was so those listeners who don't know who Clark Pinnock is have an idea of why someone may have attacked him to begin with. Yeah, that's a great question. Well, so Clark Pinnock, he was um, probably one of the most noted, productive and provocative Christian theologians in the late 20th century within evangelicalism. Um, He started out a um, uh, a Southern, well, he wasn't a Southern Baptist, but he worked for a Southern Baptist seminary, um, New Orleans Theological, um, Baptist Theological Seminary, and sort of was very instrumental in the conservative uh, resurgence, or as some people also call it the fundamentalist takeover of the SBC. And um, he eventually began to um, change his mind on various issues. Um, And this is something that I think is is actually very instructive about Clark is um, he ends up saying that one of the one of he didn't actually change in all a million different ways, as often people will accuse him of. Um, he actually says, I've actually changed more in one way, um, which then, because I'm a consistent theologian, makes me begin to thread all the needle throughout all these other things uh, that then impact it. And that had to do with the doctrine of God. And so before, uh, Andrew, before you get there, I don't want to, I don't want to, I want to maybe sit on a point here because I think. Some listeners are going to hear what you just said and they may go, okay, that sounds important, but I don't get it. Sure. And I mean this like part of how he helped with uh, what you just said, the SBC kind of re-conservative, re-fundamentalizing, however, whatever word you want to put there. Yeah. Because I think that's probably one of the biggest parts to the story of his, his attacks and even what we might say today, one of the most helpful things about learning Pinnock uh, today is recognizing he started at this place. Maybe explain that place, that SBC fundamentalism and kind of that being a stalwart somewhat in that shift. No, thank you, Aaron, because I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I think basically setting the stage a little bit more. Clark was someone who was very zealous. Um, he actually was always pretty zealous. Um, and whatever he was passionate about, he really threw himself in. Um, and he was really passionate about early in his career about making sure that uh, the Bible was respected um, and really helping um, battle off, quote unquote, 
theological liberals um, from taking over the Southern Baptist Convention. Hmm. And so there was there was a bit of a um, I don't think war is the is the right word, but there was some back and forth um, of kind of like where the Southern Baptist was going to go theologically. And, and Clark was one of these guys who was really instrumental in kind of turning the tide towards uh, more of the conservative wing of the Southern Baptist Convention, at least in terms of theology. So he actually had a huge impact on um, some pretty big names. Um, I have to look up who they were, but back in the day of kind of uh, help providing some instruction towards these people that really began to um, turn the tide for the Southern Baptists. And you're precisely right. Would it be unfair to say that some of those conversations that we see today about the Southern Baptist Convention and kind of like the fundamentalism that we see that are directly related to the work that Clark Pinnock did in pushing it that way. Is I, that I definitely, Is that uh, you know, someone more qualified than me in terms of that would probably be a better answer. But I do think that um, what we've seen with the Southern Baptist Convention, if, if, if Clark and some of the, the big voices during that time, I, I think wouldn't have really been successful in setting the stage for what is to come. I think the Southern Baptist Convention would have been very different. Hmm. Sorry, you can keep going. That was just a oh, connecting good. Good. for me to kind of. Absolutely. So I think so. I think Clark, um, he began to um, he wrote even a couple books, pretty instrumental books on uh, the Bible and Revelation. And um, a lot of it centered around the nature of Scripture. But then Clark began to um, change his mind on on Scripture. But he actually relates it to. Uh, as I said a little bit earlier, um, he relates it to his understanding of God. And basically what he says, I can't remember the exact quote, but he says something like the the, the root metaphor um, for him early on was that of an absolute monarch. Um, and the root metaphor changed to um, a divine parent. And something that you see more and more throughout a theology um, as it progresses, is he continues to come back to his sort of his canon within the canon is the parable of um, the lost son or the lost sons. Really, the prodigal son was kind of his turning point and the father he saw as in God. And um, so there's a lot there that we could talk about, but essentially his his view of God changed and therefore um, his view of scripture changed because, of course, those are very connected. Mm-hmm. Um, something I remember sharing with one of my, my classes because it was kind of already set up in a way that we would study the doctrine of scripture before the, before the doctrine of God is that um, actually this is backwards, really. I mean, yes, there's a dialectic here, but really who we believe God to be is obviously going to impinge upon what kind of scripture we think we have. Right. And Clark began to see that if God is not necessarily um, uh, his own words, uh, an absolute monarch and quote unquote in control of everything, then we might have more of a scripture that, that has some human personality in it because that's precisely how God has decided to relate to the world as he would put it. So, um, so we, you can kind of see how, when he made this shift, other things in his theology began to shift. And so a lot of these people that kind of relied upon, or relied upon him to be a, to, as a champion for their cause begin to see him more as an enemy, um, not just because he was someone who kind of sprang out from a different camp, but from someone who was in their camp 
and begin to draw people away. Yeah, and I, I don't know the whole story, and you know it better than I do, but I know a major part of the story was what happened around the Evangelical Theological Society and the the push to out him, oust him. I think Fred Sanders was a part of that too, but regardless, and that seems to have been more about the open theism view than about the inerrancy stuff, right? Although I think he's controversial on on both fronts. What, what do you know about that story? Yeah, so they ETS did bring um, try to oust him. Um, the vote was very close. Um, they actually retained Clark um, by a slim majority um, because of because the the book published with IVP. Um, the openness of God in which he was a contributor um, made such waves. Um, they did try to, they, they did hold a vote um, and they, he did not have to be ejected, but he ended up during that time, really, I don't think he began to attend ETS anymore. He began to become much more involved. And you actually see this through his publications um, with the Wesleyan Theological Society, which theologically was fitting more, more and more, the SBS, the Society for Pentecostal Studies. Um, and so, you know, that even theological societies begin to shift. Because we know all good theologians come to the Society for Pentecostal Studies at some point. That is exactly and right. And make their journey through, right? So clearly we have an enigmatic guy who starts off uh, I don't want to say starts off, but finds kind of his history, theological history, and the creation, maybe the the formation of fundamentalism, especially within the SBC, starts to have a change in his view of God, which starts to change his view of Scripture. Which, you know, one of the one of the, my entries into Clark Pinnock was someone one time asked me, or didn't ask me, they said to me, I can't be a Christian because I can't follow a God who would send people to eternal physical torment or even eternal conscious torment, right? Or just hell. And, you know, as the young, young theologian I was at the time, I, I thought, you know, I've never really considered this. And of course, the first book I pick up is his book, A Wideness and God's Mercy. And that blows apart everything for me. And I go, I like this and went to flame of love and some of his other works. Um, so we see this kind of massive shift that causes this possible ousting from evangelical theological society and the like. But, you know, Andrew, maybe tell us a bit about, and, and kind of the listeners of this podcast a bit about like, if, if God was the, the linchpin, and thinking about God as a, a parent versus a monarch, really kind of what shift did that do for him that kind of started to chip away at this maybe fundamentalism that we talk about? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think that essentially what Clark began to think about is this whole idea about God is love. And what does it mean to say that God is love? And when he began to look at his theology, at least as he had espoused it um, and learned through um, through his his journey, I think he began to see that I don't know if the God that I am I'm claiming to worship is the God of love. And for him, love is bound up with what he would call freedom or choice. Um, and essentially, if God and this, this is where he you know, really goes to the, um, the story of the prodigal son, that the, the father 
um, the perfect divine parent um, does not in any way control or in any way um, uh, determine um, everything that his children are going to do. And in fact, he wants to have a give and take relationship, even if it means that some of his children are going to be doing things that he doesn't want to happen. Uh, and he began to expand this um, uh, in terms of his theology of creation. Um, the way that God doesn't just relate to creatures, um, but relates to the created order in general. And so um, he has he has this, this whole theology of what he calls uh, self-limitation, uh, divine self-limitation, which that God, the almighty God, he's totally powerful, but he's limited himself in terms of the power and the control that he utilizes, um, which, you know, is, is something other theologians have um, grabbed onto other people's have refuted. Um, but that's the way that at least he thought of it. So um, this divine parent wants to have a real relationship, a give and take with us. And, and that means that oftentimes God will not always get what he wants. Astute listeners of this podcast will recognize that what you just said there is really instrumental to some of the conversations that Chris has had on this podcast and that we've had with our friend Tom Ord uh, in discussing this kind of idea of does God control the future? Does God even know the future? Uh, because does God limit himself in those things? So that's a little plug. If you haven't heard those, go back. You'll see them. Chris, Tom, Chris and Tom, uh, they're great. Uh, but sorry, Chris, I think you had something and I talk a lot. So No, no, no. I, I, I think it's there's a layer here. I mean, of course, I would like to talk some about there's this fascinating line. I think it's in Flame of Love, but correct me if I'm wrong about that, where he says, God is sovereign over his own sovereignty. Yes. It's, it's such a provocative line and you can start to see why he's such a con quote unquote controversial as Daniel Costello says in the forward to the book, such a quote unquote controversial figure. He's generating conversations with statements like that. So I'd love to talk a little bit about that claim, but I do think an element here that's worth kind of, trying to hold up or trying trying to point to is that there might be more going on in his conflict with the powers that be in the evangelical world than meets the eye and, and here, here's what i mean it we've been telling this story and it often gets narrated this way as if you know, he kind of has a sh theological shift, starts to voice that, that theological shift, and meets with resistance. But I wonder if, if we knew more about the story, we wouldn't find that that theological shift had a lot to do with sensing the controlling atmosphere, that the ways in which evangelicalism was just giving itself over to the culture wars, and that something in him balked at that, right? And then that kind of personal, almost existential resistance to control, because he was a theologian, started to work itself out in different articulations of God. I mean, I don't know that that's the case, but that's what I sense reading him, because I feel like at every turn, I remember the first time I seriously engaged him was around a conversation of about 
glossolalia, speaking in tongues. And there's a line in Flame of Love where he says that speaking in tongues is one of the ways in which God breaks control. God breaks control. And it was such a fascinating line. And over the years, as I've come back to that, thought about it many times, I've, I've wondered if that isn't like an insight into a kind of fundamental conviction that Clark had that might've had as much to do with the way he was being treated even before, you know, all of this exploded into the, the news that he was going to be brought up on trial or they were going to try to oust him from the, from the society. I wonder what you, what your thoughts are about that. I mean, that sense that maybe Clark was just kind of at a personal level already troubled by the way, the, you know, the, the kind of controlling spirit, right. That he could sense around him. And that his theology then becomes a way of responding to that. Yeah. We, we all, we all do this, don't we? Um, I think that, you know, the whole idea that we do theology in a vacuum um, is absurd. Um, We're all in a sense reacting. It's all, you know, theology is autobiographical. Um, And so I think it is speculative, but I do think you're probably right, uh, Chris. And I think, obviously I want to plug my own book, but (laughs) Barry Callen's written such a good book on, uh, he, he does talk about his theology, but a lot of it is actually about his journey. And I document a little bit about that in my book, but he has a much more extensive one. But what he he does show that um, he was reacting to to various factors, not just um, ideas about God, but the ways in which people were representing God and um, rep- representing Christianity and the particular form of Christianity he found himself in. Yeah. And and that's what I hear reflected in that line about absolute monarch, not so much personal testimony as, you know, a kind of, I used to think of God this way. I'm not saying, I'm not saying he didn't, but what I hear is we had come to think that way. We had come to think about God as absolute monarch and that he's, he learns that, so to speak, my guess would be that he learns that from the way he's engaged, right? The way he sees other people being engaged. And, and I I think he, it's what's remarkable though, having said all that, what's remarkable is that when you read Clark's work or you hear him talk, or if you had heard him talk or you find him on online, and there are YouTubes where people can, can listen to him. And I encourage everyone to do that if you haven't. Such a remarkable spirit. But one of the things that strikes me about it is how he remained gracious. You don't get the sense, even though I think he is reacting, you don't get the sense that his theology is reactionary, that it's simply a, a kind of gotcha response to the people he dislikes or feels that they've mistreated him. And I think that's a pretty remarkable witness, right? Where, whatever we think about his theology at the end of the day, that he was able to do theology under those conditions, with that conflict, in that spirit, it, it's, it, it is a testimony. It, it is a gift to the church, even if he's wrong about everything, right? There's something about the way he did it that I think is astonishing, really. It is. It is. I, I completely agree. And something that you'll often hear if you talk to people who knew Clark um, was they'll say he was so, his humility was just 
overwhelming. Um, even people who would come at him uh, personally, um, he was able to bless them. And so, um, you know, I think there's something too about this particular moment we find ourselves in with the talk of deconstruction and the way people are deconstructing and ex-evangelicalism and, and all of these kinds of movements. One thing that I think Clark can speak to um, is the fact that uh, first off, he he did deconstruct, but also he reconstructed in ways that were faithful. And he was perhaps allowed these factors to he reacted against them. Um, but one thing he'll always say, and I, this is something that really struck me. Um, he even says, he says, at the end, when I'm looking back at my work, I don't see them in necessarily in deconstructive terms, but more reconstructing terms. And he always said, regardless of whether or not I landed exactly where I needed to land, I was really hoping to follow God. And I think that in any kind of deconstruction we go through and trying to reconstruct, uh, following God is always kind of the way to do it, right? And I think that um, one of the ways we can kind of see that is what you're highlighting, Chris, is the fact that through the process and the way that uh, he was able to love his enemies, you know, as such as we're commanded to do, he was able to do that. And I think that is one of the marks that uh, his intent truly was to follow God. I, you know, for me, back to that kind of anecdotal, this isn't always about me at all, but I like Clark a lot. So here's my story, right? When, when I read that book, you know, Wideness and God's Mercy, and then I got really kind of enthralled with him and I started reading some of his older stuff and went, wait a second, this doesn't sound like the same guy that I just read in Wideness and God's Mercy. And, you know, then went on to read Flame of Love and, and, you know, literally was crying. I mean, I, I read that book. It's one of the two academic books that I can remember reading and going and, and literally tearing up and crying over just the beauty of it. But one of the things that gave me the courage to both deconstruct and reconstruct and kind of engage in it is actually seeing his trajectory on hell again, on going from a very conscious physical torment version of hell and that more fundamentalism stage of Clark to, you know, almost a kind of, well, maybe not uh, physical, but maybe psychological, right? Maybe this kind of eternal psychological torment, you know, we wouldn't really be, to put it a different way, it wouldn't really be burning up uh, continuously, but maybe just this absolute recognition of what's been lost, right? Relationship with God, and this is terrifying uh, to to sit in eternally towards annihilationism, right? Like towards, uh, and you can better say this than I, whether it's a flirtation with annihilationism or a wholehearted acceptance of it, he definitely takes a trajectory on hell that uh, I think what Chris, the, the sentiment that both of you were just saying, at the end of the day, he was just trying to faithfully follow what he saw in God uh, through his reading and research and through the Bible. Um, that that gave me the courage to kind of go, okay, maybe I sat here growing up in a very Pentecostal, traditional sense of eternal physical torment myself, but maybe it's okay to look at something different. And because I can read this guy and still go, whatever he may say that I might have initially disagreed with, when I read his work, it's just dripping with this love of God and love of people in an academically honest way 
that gives me the courage to do the same thing. So you tell me, I could be wrong about his trajectory on hell. I'm pretty sure that's correct, but. Uh, no, you're definitely correct. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm, I'm not a terrible scholar. Um, so how, how, you know, if you're looking at that, two questions kind of come to mind. How do you see that he did it? Right. Like, like what kind of caused Clark to do it? And then how does that speak to today and a generation of people uh, in the church that maybe we've become more fundamentalized, even in, on both spectrums, right? Whether it's conservative fundamentalism or even progressive fundamentalism that, you know, as Chris and I have talked quite a bit about already, ends up just being the same thing in different ways, fighting against each other, using the same tools of sinfulness to argue against each other. I think Clark maybe, and I hope I'm not overstating, really gives us a path forward to overcome that. Yeah, I think so, Aaron. I like how you frame that um, because ultimately, you know, I've I've actually known a good amount of people that grew up in kind of like Christian fundamentalism um, and kind of just become progressive fundamentalists. And it's the same exact uh, ways of thinking about the world and um, that they kind of have already inherited and begin to deploy, uh, even though they're just thinking the opposite. And obviously the and this is where I think some people, you know, we get mistaken. We think that, okay, well then with these two extremes, we just need to carve out a happy middle. And that's not necessarily what we need to do at all. Um, what we need to do is learn ways to think um, and ways in which to engage these issues that are faithful. And I think with Clark, I mean, let's just use hell as kind of a test case. Um, I mean, one of the reasons that Clark ended up on annihilationism um, and the, basically the view that um, hell is real, um, but it is not going to continue forever, but that eventually, basically the fire consumes, uh, even though the fire is still metaphorical, fire is consumes rather than torments forever and ever and ever. Yeah. And he actually says, um, actually there's an article, I was actually not prepared for his argumentation on this, it was a bit surprised. He actually ends up saying is I'm probably playing into the hands of my, um, of my quote unquote theological enemies, but I'm going to be honest about the fact that I actually began to relook at the issue of hell uh, because I, it, it just completely scandalized my sensibilities hmm. and that ended up causing me then to begin to deploy my theological methodology. I'm, of course, rephrasing him, but he began to relook at scripture and say, okay, are there more faithful ways of reading scripture that do justice uh, to this God of boundless love? And he began to, you know, pick up on and interpret whether or not everybody agrees with his interpretation of scripture or not. He began to see a good case made for the view that hell is real, right? Hell is actually a a reality to reckon with, but he says it's nature is what is problematic. The way the tradition, uh, or at least some parts of the tradition have envisioned hell are problematic, the nature of it. And so, um, and of course the way that, and this is probably going to get into the future conversation, Chris began to hint at it, but part of the reason that he ended up there and not other places is because of some of his fundamental convictions about God and the way God relates to humanity, so human, divine agency, um, all of that. And of course, he is committed to the fact that 
God is not coercive. Um, God, uh, just like the, uh, the father and the prodigal son lets the prodigal fall, he'll woo. Um, but he ultimately will not coerce, um, anyone to come home. And so, um, he doesn't vindictively act out tormenting for attorney and attorney, attorney. Um, but then he, out of love, um, gives a judgment and pulls away and allows them to be consumed. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's one way that he began to thread the needle throughout all of his theology and say, um, how does all of these various theological loci, how do they, how do they, how does the doctrine of God and, and the fundamental commitments I have about God impinge upon all these other issues? What, what I liked what you had to say there, and it's an attitude that I think I've found in his work, and I'm glad that you kind of expressed it this way, is that the theological journey that he took wasn't reactionary as much as it was attempting to find a more faithful way to follow God, right? Which is so different than the way that, you know, I've taught taught college students for a long time. And there's always that thing there, there comes that moment of deconstruction, whatever you want to call it, where the answers they have no longer fit the questions that they're being asked. And what they end up doing very often, I don't want to overgeneralize this, but what I've just noticed a lot is they'll go and they'll find a different answer that might fit. Okay. With the question that's different. And then they latch onto that question and then that's just it, right? Well, I found a different answer and I'm wholeheartedly accepting this different one because it's better than the last one. So it's kind of reactionary, right? Like fighting against the answer that they used to have or the theology they used to have, where it seems like for Clark, really the process has, is just always a process. It's just always yet again recognizing maybe there is a more faithful reading. Maybe there's a more faithful theology. Maybe there's a more faithful way of thinking about God or hell or uh, any of the other things that he kind of really focuses on, the spirit too, right? That pushes him forward. That's never pointing the finger backwards and going, that was all crap. As much as it was to say, hey, there, there's just more to know. There's just another way and I'm trying to be more faithful, right? Yeah, yeah just say just a quick word, Andrew, before you respond there. I, I think what, what Andrew said just now about the ways in which he recognized his own kind of gut level, deep soul response to the way hell was discussed, and that he couldn't he couldn't live with what was being said. I, I think that's one of the reasons his work works on us like it does is that you get the sense that this is a man who's come into alignment with what he's saying that 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 he's he's speaking from some deep place in his soul and that he's not ignoring his kind of human response to what he hears about god and this is actually david bentley hart who i think i'm much more with hart than what am with pinnock pretty much on every theological issue but this is one thing they share i think and that is that you can't do theology by well if you ignore your own conscience, if you ignore your own sensibility. Yeah. You can't, it's not to say that your conscience dictates what's true, but you have to be honest about how you're responding to what seems to be true. And I think that kind of honesty in Clark is what kept his work so human. 
in, in the best possible ways, right? That that you you can sense and you you can really tell when you listen to it. But I think it's true in the writing too, that he's speaking from a place, and I hate the way this this word has been used, but he's speaking from a place of integrity, that there's mm-hmm. an alignment between what he's saying, what he is hoping to be true, what he feels about who God is and what it means to be a person of God, the people of God, so on. And that's why I feel like he's such a remarkable figure because of the way he does all of this. Again, as I've made this clear, I mean, I disagree with pretty much everything in terms of the nature of God. We talked a lot about this when Tom Ward and I were, were going around and around about open theism. I think Clark and I would completely agree about the character of God. Hmm. God is good. God yeah. is loving, etc. We just, where we disagree is what is God's nature and therefore what's the nature of things. But what I find so remarkable about him is that he, as he was trying to find language for speaking about what it, what it was, he believes he believed to be true about God. He, he never did it in ways that violated his own conscience. And I think that a lot of evangelical theology try, and now I think this is contradictory, but they try to frame it as you should be true, your conscience be damned, right? This is true, your, your feelings don't yeah. matter, right? Facts yep. don't care about your feelings. And that kind of sensibility, which is, is completely diluted and self-contradictory, but that way of framing things can can lead a lot of people into breaking their own consciousness, right? Because they're trying to hold to a truth when everything in them is rebelling against it. And I, I, I think it's remarkable that he didn't do that, that he, that he owned his responses and spoke from that place. Yeah. I think what you're saying, Chris, about owning it is really important because we all have it. Some of us just own it and some of us deny it, <laughs> deny that we have it. Right. Mm. Um, and yeah, there is, there is part of it where like, I remember one, one quote, he says um, something along the lines of, you know, not all new thoughts or change of minds are good. Um, in, in many cases, old thoughts are much better than new thoughts. And sometimes uh, scripture, you know, ought to offend our sensibility, but it's not offending us. We're reading it wrongly. Um, But we need, this is where wisdom comes in, where discernment comes in. And I think that doing that kind of hard work is where discernment comes in. Yeah. Um, And the wrestling is, and is how discernment is formed. And I think that's the problem sort of with some some ways people do theology in general and are told to do theology is that um, people just accept in a sense what whoever says it because they haven't been taught the act of discernment and actually yeah. had people to walk through them to help develop them that with, with God. And, um, and so I, yeah, I do think Clark helps us in that way. And I think it's very uh, he's very instructive in this moment, sort of, perhaps more instructive even now for us than even then in some ways. I, I love that because I'm thinking, you know, there's been a, uh, with the rise of modernism and don't want to get down this path too much, but with the rise of modernism, there was this pushback against any kind of feelings or emotions. Right. And, and it's been used in highly sexist ways. Men are logical. Women are, you know, emotional and, and therefore one is, you know, should be president and the other shouldn't. Right. I mean, I grew up with those kind of arguments. 
But what what you both have said is that, you know, and something I, I find in my reading of Clark is that he holds these things in such beautiful tension in the logic and feeling, the conscious, the integrity, and also holds intention that just because it does feel right, it still could be wrong. And he and he brings all of that to the table. And I think that's why, to some degree, he keeps pushing forward with this theology. And maybe that is going back and going, well, I did change my mind, but now I'm going back because there was something that I missed. And I'm... But... It, it was always, and I like reclaiming that word, Chris, that integrity, because it seems like so many people use integrity mean, just hold on to the thing that you had at the beginning that your church had taught you, that's really integrity. Well, no, that's not very much integrity, that's just blind acceptance, right? Like, But actually, integrity is taking all of these different things, our feelings, our logic, our explorations, and our traditions, and bringing them all to the table and going... Yet again, what do I think about God? And if that doesn't change, you know, throughout your life quite a few times, then maybe you're not bringing the right things to the table or you've said you brought new things, but really you're just bringing the old things and just putting them there and saying, see, there it is. I did it, right? I had no question there. That was like an end thing. My thoughts. Someone else asked a question now. <laughs> I'm a bad host. Well, I, I do want to argue with Andrew a little bit. Um, just for the fun Ooh, of it. Here about, we go. About where where Clark, I think, I think is wrong, and 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 I'd also like to hear kind of because Andrew and I haven't talked much about this, just kind of where you would disagree with them. I mean, so I think pretty much everyone knows where I'm going to disagree. But why don't we start with what would you say are your disagreements with him? Like where would where would you depart? Yeah, well, let's. Talk, well, I think we just probably best to start at the beginning um, with this whole change of the doctrine of God. I think that Clark was right to begin to sense that um, that there was there's something wrong with the particular kind of Calvinistic theology that he inherited um, and that he developed. Um, but I think there's some category mistakes. I think that, for instance. Um, he equates love so close to uh, freedom. Um, and I think that really there should be the category of choice and the category of freedom. So ultimately, you know, choice uh, for Pinnock um, is freedom, but I think that they're two different things. And so what I want to argue with him is that Ultimately, we do have choice. God gives us choice and we can choose freedom or slavery. Um, but freedom is not that choice sure. um, because the more that we come into alignment with um, to God, the more and more free we become. And I also so I think that's one thing with the whole love, freedom, choice. And that takes him in one direction. I think the other thing that he really pushes against that I would want to kind of modify a little bit is the whole idea of uh, power and God's power and what kind of power God actually has. I think what Clark ends up doing is basically assuming the same kind of um, idea of power that essentially the tradition is, is held largely, which is that God is kind of a do anywhere, any, anything, anytime kind of God. Um, and so in order for God to actually begin to relate to us in a loving way, then he has to restrict part of himself 
to begin to do that. And so, but I'm wondering, and I've wrestled with this, but I'm wondering if um, that's actually not the kind of power that God has at all. I wonder if, if we have largely just put on the shoulders of God, our idea of what power is. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think that we can, um, Clark was right about beginning to restructure God as love and begin to have this relational account of um, how God interacts with, with creatures, with creation. But I think those few things should be modified um, and might have taken different directions. So, yeah, I think you can see, I mean, there's so much to say, but I think you can see ways in which when he's talking about tradition, he often seems to be talking. I think he himself thought he was talking about the ancient Christian tradition. I mean, he, he says a lot of stuff about yeah. kind of Hellenistic philosophy and you know, the kind of what's the word that he uses for it? The, the ways in which that kind of worms its way into Christian conviction and starts to distort belief in the resurrection of the body and the character of God. You know, he he draws on on that. He he plays that card a lot. That you know, notions of immutability or impassibility in God are the results of Hellenistic philosophy, not Christ, not truly faithful Christian theology and so on. It's a familiar move from the time, yeah. but he, he makes that move a lot. But if you read closely, you'll start to notice that a lot of times he says tradition thinking he's talking about that. But it's pretty clear that he's actually talking about the Calvinism that he has been working in. What he means by tradition really is those Christians that I was working closely with a decade ago. That mm-hmm. That's what he means by tradition. And I, I mean, I think that's a pretty common mistake to make where people take, I, I just taught through Samuel Chadwick, who's a holiness preacher, his book, The Way of Pentecost for my pneumatology course. And Chadwick opens the Way to Pentecost book with this kind of like diatribe against the Christian tradition for its neglect of the Holy Spirit. Pinnock picks up a very similar thing, right? That, and Chadwick like, just plays into kind of ancient Christianity for and medieval Christianity for kind of sidelining the spirit. But what he really means is these Christians around me for the last 10 to 20 years have not talked about the spirit. Right? And I think yeah. when you realize that, then you realize, oh, well, he's speaking to a very particular problem. Like it's a very specific case. There's a like, and I think it's important to read Clark that way, that really what he he frames his critique as if it's against the Christian tradition. Hmm. I think it's really against the the kind of hard shift toward fundamentalism in Baptist circles and the ways in which they're talking about God and they're talking about Christian tradition. He's he's responding to that. I think once that comes clear, a lot of his responses make more sense, but it also tells you why he made the mistakes you're talking about. The reason his categories are wrong is that those are the categories of the people's people he's disagreeing with. Yeah. Yeah. Still working with those categories too much. And I think theologians were all at risk of this. I mean, I think, yeah. yeah, So I think that's a dimension to this. That's worth, that's worth naming. It is. And like, I know with like the, the hell part, you know, he actually references Augustine and says, um, the whole idea of God 
um, basically doing miracles, keeping people alive. Um, I mean, but here's the thing, like with Augustine, he actually, he reminds me a lot of Colin Gutton in this way, in the terms that he just blinds Augustine most of the time. Um, And Colin Gutton, as you're very well aware, has come under tons of criticism because of the fact of this very thing you're talking about. Yeah, it was a, it was a fad at the time. I mean, that's part of, like for those who are theologians, like the kind of warning here, the kind of uh, cautionary tale is that a lot of things that seem like truisms in the moment are really fads. And, and when Clark was doing his work, everybody was doing this to Augustine, right? I mean, yes. like yes. everybody was taking Augustine to the woodshed and blaming him for everything that's gone wrong. Yes. And, and, also, they were all playing the Hellenistic, everything Augustine didn't get wrong, the Hellenistic philosophers did. Yeah. And of course, that's that's unfair, right? And, and it is a misrepresentation. But I think it helped. We don't read them well, Clark or Colin Gunton or whomever else you want to name. We don't read them well if we forget their context, right? Yes. And yes. we don't want to do to them what they were doing to the ancient church fathers to Augustine or whomever else. Yeah. And speaking of that, Chris, it's funny. I was actually, this is why I bring up Gunton is because there was, uh, I think it was maybe shortly after Gunton's death, premature death. Um, uh, there, there was a collected volume um, basically responding to his theology and, and uh, Robert Jensen, someone you have written a lot about and on, um, he actually makes this comment that he says, um, he makes that very point about kind of like theological fashion that he says um, for a while there, it was everybody's basking Augustine. And now everybody is wanting to abash the Augustine bashers. bashers right. And, <laughs> and he says, and, he, and he, his comment is like, did Augustine get things wrong? Absolutely. And we should begin to, you know, point those things out. And, you know, he makes the big argument uh, with the Cappadocians and all that, but he says, um, but at the same time, we're doing exactly what we're accusing them of doing. Right. So, yeah, we can't. The, the, that's something that I've had to discover, Chris, um, throughout the years is that I, I, I didn't realize how the the world of fashion uh, follows you into theology. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, well, and I think I think it goes back to something that, again, that. You know, Chris and I have had a lot of conversations about it's so easy to fall into that kind of reality of of reactionary stuff. And even someone like Clark, who we spent, you know, much of this podcast praising for actually breaking some of that mold can fall back into that, uh, especially when it comes to this idea of the spirit, which, you know, given the tradition that he's from is an easy thing to see outside of his tradition and into the, into the early church fathers. But that's because the tradition he was in was pretty, I don't want to say anti-spirit, but for someone who's Pentecostal often can seem anti-spirit, right? Which is that same, that same and perspective. obviously Clark had those sensibilities because those are the people he gravitated toward. Right. The Pentecostal circles. Right. So I think, you know, what, what seemed to be playing out, like on the surface of the text about pneumatology and the Christian tradition was, I think really about his personal story and the ways in which the circles he moved in were anti-Pentecostal and were resisting the charismatic. Mm-hmm. So it, it's easy to kind of work that up into, and, and at that point, all that talk about ancient pneumatology is really just a symbol 
for kind of personal conflict yeah. over charismatic issues. And again, I think that's that's a kind of cautionary tale. And it's it, it is a gift from Clark. It's not one he intended to give us, but it is it is one that, yeah, I mean, we can see kind of how that's playing out and let the spirit bring that light on us. Uh, one more thing I'll say about him in terms of style, since we're talking about fashion, I think, and this is not a perfect analogy, but if you think about like, I love TV and film. If you think about like the different kinds of artists it takes to, to make, you know, I watched the green Knight recently. Which I absolutely loved David Lowry film, but you've Maybe got one of the few that I've heard say that. Oh my gosh. I, I, I think it's, it, I think it was incredible, but we, that's a whole nother podcast. We'll fight on that later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think the, when we talk about my upcoming book, we can talk about that because I wish I had seen this movie before that book came out because I would have written about it. But regardless, in order to have a film, right, you've got, you've got a script to write. You've got actors. You've got the technicians who actually you know, set the stage, literally light the stage, so on. You've, you've got the director who's trying to hold all this together into a cohesive vision, artistic vision, and so on. Like you've got a, you've got a lot of different aspects. I think different theologians can kind of function in different ways. So some theologians, I think, are essentially scriptwriter theologians. Some are actor theologians. It's not They're not saying anything necessarily original to them, but the way that they yeah. say it becomes yeah. especially, like their performance of it becomes right. especially convincing. I think you have some theologians that are kind of directorial. They see kind of the big picture and they're, they're concerned about the lighting and about the acting and about the script. And I think that part of what, Clark offers that's kind of unique there is the the way he performs certain lines. So I think of him kind of like a, a, one of those character actors that you bring into a film. He doesn't have the main role, but he's a character actor who, even if he's on the screen for just a few minutes, for just a few scenes, it's memorable because right. of the way he does theology, right? And like that line, God is sovereign over his sovereignty that I mentioned earlier, or there's another line in the book in, in Flame of Love, where he's talking about hell, uh, maybe, no, this might be in the the Wideness of God's Mercy book, but anyway, where he, somewhere he's talking about hell, and he makes this comment that hell is like a sit-in, where people are refusing <laughs> to let God move them on, right? Like, that yeah. they're, what, what, one of the things that's so bizarre about that, right, is that a sit-in, normally, you, at least I think of a sit-in as a kind of protest, Right. Some injustice. And then he kind of takes that language and says, well, hell, in a sense, is a, a protest against God. It's a sit in and they won't. But of course, then that aligns God with the police and with the law in all kinds of ways that are against most right. of Clark's theology. Right. Mm -hmm. But that very rub. Right. God is sovereign over his sovereignty. Hell is like a sit in. There's this deep conflictedness in it. Right. So mm -hmm. let's really quickly think about that statement. God is sovereign over his sovereignty. I mean, those, those terms cancel each other. Right. Like if God is sovereign over his sovereignty, what is the meaning of sovereignty? Like what, what are we talking about? What does that actually mean? Right. So if, if sovereignty isn't control, if it's influence, God has influence over his ability to influence people. But how far does that influence go? Right. How much sovereignty does God have over his own sovereignty? 
right? If there are gaps in the sovereignty of God, are there gaps in God's sovereignty in relation to his own sovereignty, right? That, and, and of course, that's just an infinite regression. But as an act of theology, so like in terms of script writing or directing, if I can run with this metaphor, I don't love that. But as the performance of a question, you know, as a character actor dropping a line in the middle of a conversation, I love that, right? So I, I, it's not where I think any of us should end up. I don't think it's the theology the church should profess. But I don't think we can, I'll say we can't, but I love having Clark's voice in the conversation because that generates so much, right? Precisely because it rubs against itself. And that's what you get, I think, with that hell as a sit-in line, as I said. It runs against the grain of his own theology, right? Right. It's almost at every point about God as the liberator. God is the one who's protesting with us against sin. In fact, I think you could say his entire doctrine of Christ is a doctrine of Jesus doing a sit-in with us, right? Kind of putting himself at the mercy of the unjust law, unjust authority, the powers of the enemy. But then for him to turn that back on hell, again, I don't think it's the kind of theology we want to end with, but it's unbelievably generative. Yeah. Right. So anyway, for what that's worth, that's, that's kind of how I've come to why I feel so warmly toward Clark's work, even though at every turn, I, I, I want to say something else, but I, I, I often find that he, what he says enables me to say even more clearly than I would have been able to otherwise. Yeah. What it is I wanted to say. Andrew, let me ask you a question. Uh, Chris, just to say, I, I think that's brilliant. I think that's sums up a lot of the sentiments that I have for him too, because there's a lot I disagree with him, but I can go back to his texts over and over again and read them and be so provoked to thought that uh, it begins me almost in a process of writing again, whether that's an agreement or disagreement or just exploration on what he said, right? And he would, he would and does love that. I'm, I'm yeah. sure. Um, Andrew, to, to kind of finish this up for today, if you can like boil down such a large body of work in the person to, uh, and, and we've already talked about the process of him as a, as a theologian, how he's moved and shaped and how that's important for today. But if there's even one more thing that you could say for those who are listening, here's what we can take away from Clark as a necessary correction to what we see in especially American culture, since we're all in America and that's really what we should speak to the most. Right. Uh, but what else can he provide that we've forgotten or we just need as a necessary corrective? Yeah, it's a good question. <clears throat> this is going to sound um, sort of contradictory of, of an ironic in, in the sense that of what we've already said about Clark um, in terms of his, his reception of his early voices in the tradition. But I think that regardless of whether he got all of the voices in the tradition right, something he does keep us from is theological sectarianism. And what I mean by that is he, you read Flame of Love, um, and that's the, I come back to that, and probably all three of us come back to that because we're Pentecostals, right? Um, and yep. that was kind of the first one I really read of his, and then I began reading other things. But uh, something I found so interesting is he's an evangelical at, at you know, in the 90s, conversant with uh, Roman Catholics, uh, Orthodox, 
theology. He's conversant with um, some select voices within the tradition, but also mainline theologians. And um, you, he's ecumenical, but he's also very eclectic. It's, it's Sometimes I look back and I think it's funny how he uses some of the voices um, in his theology. But I think that's precisely what we need. Um, Bose's theologians, um, but also for those who are listening that are just people in the church, um, people in, you know, just lay people just trying to learn more about God. I think lending our ear towards the whole church um, and the riches that are there is something that's really important and not getting into the us versus them. And actually his theology in that way connects with his life. Um, Clark has a book called um, Theological Crossfire that I'd never read until I did this project. And he has, it's an evangelical liberal dialogue. He has a book that he co-edited with John Cobb, the process theologian. I mean, this is who Clark was. Uh, he was the kind of guy that was willing to have dialogue, terrible dialogue, and actually disagree quite strongly with people, but at the same time, willing to, um, to dialogue, willing to, to love other people and reach across the aisle. And that's not something we often see, unfortunately, uh, in Christian circles when it comes to hot issues. Yeah, so, one the, yeah, one of the yeah. things I think, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, Andrew. I think one of the things, it's hard for us to reconcile sometimes that it's possible for your, your heart, your soul in that sense, to be larger and truer than your mind can grasp. And, and the opposite can be true. Like you can have like absolutely brilliant mind but a heart that's small. Yeah. I think what it seems to me that of the two, if you have to choose, you know, choose the heart that's open, choose the heart that's wide and deep. And I think that's who Clark was as a person. I think a lot, I, I think there are severe limits in terms of what he knows about the tradition, like what he's actually read. And there are limits philosophically in terms of his grasp of how, ideas work but all of that it fades in significance when you're up against a soul that is shining with the love of god and i think that to me that's one of the things i love about him is precisely that i know i love his work not because he's saying things i agree with <laughs> right because i disagree with most of it but what i what i resonate with is the spirit of it right the ways in which he does it and i yeah. think that you know Gosh, to me, that's that's a really, really high praise, right? For a theologian, even though I think there are severe limitations in terms of the correctness of the theology, quote unquote. Gosh, the spirit of it is just it's, and that's why I think, Andrew, to your point just now, that's what keeps us from sectarianism, not his grasp, yeah, intellectually of how all of this holds together, but just his relentless readiness to have the conversation. Yeah, which I would say is a, a great metaphor of boundless love, uh, or the name of Andrew's book. Uh, so clearly, I'm going to say go buy Andrew's book, Boundless Love, uh, anywhere books are sold, right? Um, to learn more about Clark, but I am going to throw the question to you, Andrew. If our listeners have not engaged with Clark 
since you are the Clark expert now, uh, you know, that dumb phrase, you literally wrote the book on it, you know, since you have literally wrote the book on Clark, uh, what would be your like top, maybe give three, like if this is your, your intro into Clark and you want to explore, start here, jump here, go here, and then you can be off to the races after that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thanks. Thanks, Aaron. And thanks, Chris, for this time. I basically the book itself um, is meant for someone who's never read Clark's theology. Um, it's it's meant to help um, some people who have only read uh, some of the critics on both sides of it to kind of clear things up. It's it's intentionally neutral. You won't hear my voice, at least intentionally in it. Um, I tried to just give him a fair reading and uh, it's, it's about a hundred page book. And so I think ultimately, if you're looking for um, basically what Clark is about, uh, sort of the major things he talks about in the way as we, we talk this podcast, he can provoke conversation. Um, I think that uh, it, it's, it's a good intro um, into Clark. And I've also mentioned this before, but if you want to learn more about Clark's life, Barry Callen's work, Journey Charts Renewal, it's really good as well. Now, top three for Clark. If you had to say, read these books of Clark Pinnock. Okay. Which one would you you suggest diving into after your book? Yeah. Lay of the land. Yeah. Yeah. um, Oh, God. It's really really hard to say. I I, I definitely think Flame of Love is a really good book. Um, It's the one we've talked about the most. Um, honestly, one of, it was fun kind of reading the old version. You'll have to actually, this, there's been an updated version, but you can read, uh, Clark's back and forth with various theologians on his view of hell. Um, and so you can get that on Amazon. It's a used copy. Um, that's always interesting because you get other perspectives and how he's interacting with those perspectives. Um, and then probably his, besides flame of love, like his last big book that kind of sums up his view of God and kind of defending it is most moved mover. Um, Mm. And so that's kind of his, his his last major book and a pretty significant one. So I'd say those three. Yeah. Hey, Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with Chris and I uh, to be put in the hot seat, so to speak, and asking questions and uh, just giving us a good kind of perspective on Clark. Really appreciate you taking the time, man. Oh, thanks, Aaron. Thanks, guys. It was, it was great. Yeah, we will. We'll talk with you soon. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. Chris, man. All right. So we just talked a lot about Clark. Um, talked a lot about how there's a lot we like about him. There's a lot that maybe we disagree with, but still like about him. Um, it just seems to be kind of a likable guy. Although that whole kind of like fundamentalism from his beginning in the Baptist church and that blew my mind. Um, cause it just doesn't seem like who he would be at the end of his life. Right. Compared to the beginning. But it, I think it brings up a good point that I, you know, maybe we can both give our perspectives on, but I'll ask you to kind of jump in first. How do you change your mind from a theological position without going down this thing that you and I have talked about in different podcasts here and there, we've kind of teased it a bit, kind of going down this like deconstructionist path where you just kind of end up in the other camp of the same frustration or the same pushing or the same, you know, being upset about 
how do we actually kind of move, you know, maybe you can tell us a place that you move from one place to another and kind of did that with congeniality and graciousness. Yeah. I mean, man, this, this to me is a fascinating topic. And the more I think about it, the more I'm fascinated with it because I, I, I think I'm at the place right now and I may change my mind later, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm at the place right now where I don't think you can change your mind. I think all you can do is kind of one, recognize that your mind is changing or has changed hmm. and two, be open to the change that you expect might come. But I think it, in some ways, I don't think you can actually change your mind. I think you can put yourself in a position to be changed. And I think you can recognize that you have changed and you can mm. deal with that well or poorly. But I don't actually think we can act on ourselves that directly. Wait, so are you a Calvinist? Is that what you're saying? I'm God changes your mind? <laughs> no, I think oh, that's okay. part of the mystery of what it means to be human is that our minds, they, they're they much more mysterious to us than we realize they are, right? Yeah, the, yeah. Like, I'll give you kind of one thing that's so obvious, it's almost insultingly obvious, but I don't know that we think about it enough. And that is that our thoughts come to us. Like everything we think, every, mm. you know, every word we say, like they arrive, but truly when you think about it, we didn't, call for them. And often when you try to call for something, when you know you need to think of a quote or a number or a name or a name, yep. you often can't call mm -hmm. it. Right. And then sometimes, I mean, this happens daily. I think for most, it certainly happens daily for me. I, I think this is a common experience where we say things that surprise ourselves, right? We, we, we realize, you know, or we say things and say immediately, that's not what I mean. Yeah. Or we yep. say, I don't know how to say what I mean. Mm, yeah. Like, I actually think our own thoughts are far more mysterious to us than we realize that they are. And we're admitting it in some ways. Like when we say, you know, I can't say exactly what I mean. I mean, just today, my wife and I were having a really serious conversation, which is marital code for argument. <laughs> Hmm, I, I, I knew that conversation. And she was like, she, she pressed me. She's like, I know you're upset. Say what you're thinking. Tell me why you're upset. And I said, I don't know. I don't know if I can say it. And I don't know if I want to risk trying to say it. Hmm. If I risk trying to say it and I don't say it exactly right. And then you, you think it's something else, then we're in trouble. Or if I do get it exactly right. And then you reject it. Like, yeah, it's safer to just kind of leave it in. I know I'm upset and I have some vague sense of why. Right, right. Like getting my mind around what I actually even think is actually pretty difficult to do. Mm. So if, if it's hard to even know what you think, actually, I, I think that's a sign that wherever the change happens in our thinking, it's kind of an unreachable place for us. Like, And I'm not saying that God does all that. I am just yeah. It's, I mean, I think God's involved, but I don't think right. God moving levers, you know, behind the curtain. Can I, I, just, can I, yeah, 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 please. Can I try to say that, uh, <laughs> can I try to say it in a way that you mean? No. Can I try to give a, a, a storied example and see if this kind of resonates with what you're saying? It's really what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. So for instance, growing up for me, I grew up in a tradition, women were not allowed to be pastors, women 
couldn't be leaders. I mean, uh, we wouldn't go so far as someone like ugh, Piper, uh, who would say things like women can't be police officers because they have to give a command to a man. Like we didn't go that far, but we were pretty close. Um, and, uh, it's a tradition, you know, well, uh, it's a tradition I grew up in and tradition that still struggles with women and, and leadership in the pastorate, at least to the highest ranks of the pastorate, uh, their ranks, so to speak. And throughout my undergraduate education, I held that position because that's what I grew up with. I was reading books. I engaged with people. I knew people who had different opinions You know, I knew some of the arguments, not all of them, but there was never a point that I was reading a commentary on first Corinthians or on Ephesians or on some of Paul's other letters where I, I heard the argument and I, and I went, you know what? Now that I see this argument, I am consciously changing my mind from this position to this position and that's it. Like I've changed my mind now. Here I am. I can't even I can't even say when my mind was changed mm-hmm. from being someone who would argue that women shouldn't be in the pastorate to vehemently arguing that women not only should be but must be, yeah. right? Like and I can't say when exactly it happened. I can't point to a certain reading, but I can talk about some of the formulative moments of my life. That if I look back on, I can go, I think these are some of the reasons that I think this way. Mm-hmm. Does that kind of resonate maybe with what you're trying to say? Yeah, no, that's right. I think, and I think that's all of our story. I mean, I don't want to overgeneralize, but in, I, that's my experience. The more I've thought about this and paid attention to what other people are saying about their experience, that's what I, that's what I pick up on over and yeah. over again, is that I definitely think people do change their minds or their minds are changed. But I, I think it's virtually always mysterious, like why mm. they changed exactly. And even if they can give a general impression of, you know, will this happen? And so like in a vacuum, like, you know, if aliens were studying our species and, and they, they thought like, I think we think we think. And they probably are studying us. Oh, of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think we would expect that because we're quote unquote reasonable creatures, we can figure out the reasons that we have for thinking mm-hmm. X, Y, or Z. And so that we actually are pretty confident we can explain why someone shifted from holding this belief to that one. Right. So for example, in the Pentecostal circles, let's say you're in a church where they're preaching, you know, hyper faith, right? You can, you get what you confess, you get wealth, you get health, you get, promotion, you get all the blessings. So we might think that, you know, someone suffers greatly and then change their mind about that theology. Well, it's obvious why, right? They They suffered and that's why they changed their mind. But the truth of the matter is there are lots and lots and lots of people, you know, untold numbers of people in those circles who suffer things even worse than that. Yeah. And never Mm -hmm. change their minds. Right. In fact, they just double down all the more. And actually, if you think about it, that makes sense too, right? So like, let's say I believe this about health and wealth and faith and prosperity, and then catastrophe hits my life. Yes, 
it would make a kind of sense if I let that challenge my belief system. But it also would make sense if I thought I need to double down on my belief system because it was the doubts I had in that belief system that allowed this catastrophe to come to me in the first place, right? Like right. both of these things are equally reasonable. Right. So I think part of the problem we have is not only the mystery of our own minds, but the fact that given the way the world works, there are a lot of different things that are possible. And so mm-hmm. trying to understand why people change their minds, it's hard not only because of the way our minds are mysterious to ourselves, but also because the world is just unbelievably complex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We we're never going to get at, I, I don't think, a, a kind of fully explanatory account of right. how minds change, right? And I don't I don't know that we need to, right? As theologians or philosophers, I think it's an important question to grapple with, but I don't know that we need to expect a full explanation. Yeah. So I think the one one last note and then we can kind of take the next step in the conversation but i i do think it's important not to be proud if you don't change your mind like in other words i've heard people say things like you know i've believed this all of my life as if that's a point of pride right right i'm not 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 a good sign but i also have heard people take a lot of pride in the fact that they changed their mind but mm-hmm. I don't think that we have that kind of agency. What When you say your mind has changed, you're really describing something that's happened to you that may have something to do with your agency. I'm not saying you're not participating. Right. It's not as simple as you decided to change your mind. Yeah. And maybe to put it in this way, it's it's putting ourselves in, pace, in, in places and spaces or engaging with things that might have effect upon us and being open to that effect uh, and being formed by things while we necessarily aren't consciously saying because of this, I'm going here. And I I think there might be some spaces that people may have, may have said that or believe that they say that, right? Like, because of this, I'm, I'm here. Like I'm believing something different today, but you still have to be open to how that, reading how that text how that movie how that event can have meaning in your life and if you're not open to that then you know then you won't change your mind and without that event there won't be any effect upon you that actually kind of helped you along the path in having a a change of mind maybe putting it that way a change of mind i think that's exactly right and i don't think those outcomes are easily predictable in other words Mm. i i don't think you know so there's a there's a kind of pop notion that an enemy is just someone whose story you haven't heard. Yeah. Yeah. If if you dislike someone, if if you think ill of immigrants say, that's just because you don't know any immigrants. Well, no, like that's not necessarily true at all. Right. I mean, there are people who their thoughts about immigrants are based in the fact that they had some kind of relationship that Mm -hmm. they, they found problematic, but it's also true and I've, I mean, I know people, people in my family who have, I think, toxic understandings of, say, immigration, even though they would tell you, I know plenty of exceptions to this. Right. Or they feel deeply racist views, even though they would tell you, you know, the smartest person I know is right. X or 
you know, my best friend is why, right? Like, I, I, I think that we often under, I think we, not often, we always underestimate just how mysterious and complicated human being is and that we don't yeah. know ourselves nearly as well as we think we do. Yeah. And not only can we not change our minds, but e- even if we put ourselves in a position to be changed, there's still a lot that could spin in different directions. Like we don't, mm. we don't quite know. So it isn't as simple in other words as, yeah, if we could just get people to the border and let them see, or if we could just get people into prisons and let them see, or if we could just get people to talk across racial lines or across class differences, like it, it isn't, the, I mean, we should do all that, but that isn't simple. Like it isn't, yeah. there's no way to predict what the outcomes would be. Which which kind of says things in, in, in both ways, maybe in, in pop culture, right? Like we are, that also means that we can't force a change of mind. That's right. Right. So all of our internet fighting yep. and, and I can be bad at it. I mean, just gonna be honest, right? Like, especially in this political landscape, masks, vaccines, whatever it is, I can be really, yeah, I can, I can be an upset person about a lot of things. Yeah. Right. And we, just as much as we can't change someone's mind, we ourselves can't force our own mind to change and rather we can put ourselves into again places and spaces by which we can be formed and if we're open to that formation and i think taking this kind of to theological route right this is the way that we talk about the work of the spirit within people Mm -hmm. right and maybe even that sense of of I don't want to say the the quote-unquote unforgivable sin, right? The blaspheming of the Holy Spirit, which some theologians like to say, you know, is just the persistent and continual rejection of the Spirit forever, right? Yeah. Like, as, as if, like, that's, like, just being closed off to God. Mm-hmm. But there is a sense in which we talk about the Spirit in this very pneumatological way of saying that actually our reality is one that's being formed by the Spirit— but not because we can force the spirit to do it or we can just respond exactly as we need to. But there is some kind of interaction between the spirit and us Absolutely. that does form us. Yep. And sometimes it's like my example, again, back to kind of women in ministry. Now I can point back to all the arguments. I can point back to all the the reasons why today I would hold the position that I hold. Okay. And, I, and I can logically and reasonably explain that and I can talk about text and I can talk about their historical context and I can talk about theological visions and yada, yada, yada. Right. But just because I can talk about them doesn't mean those are the reasons why I believe the way I do. That's right. That's, I think that's so important that like with, you know, quote unquote hindsight, you can see good reasons to hold what you hold now. Yeah. But that doesn't mean those were the things that convince you. I mean, this is, this is one of the things that I think the apologetics movement, at least mm. in popular forms, right. totally misunderstands. Yep. Right? Yep. That it's never arguments that convince us. Like That's never what's really working. Even when it seems to be what's working, it's only because other things were working too, right? So like you never actually argue anyone into the kind of change of mind that will change them. Right. Unless you arguing with that person works kind of all the way down the scale. In other words, if you have a a kind of deep personal connection with someone, 
And at some level, you're like, I'm bound to this person. So the argument is just about getting to the place where your mind can accept what your soul kind of already knows. Mm -hmm. Like then I think apologetics can work. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's evangelism. Yeah. Right. We talk about evangelism very often as if you can just present a good enough case for the gospel or a good enough case for Christ, then someone's going to, of course, why would they not? It's reasonable. It makes sense. Why would they not take my, you know, sometimes it's very sales pitchy, right? Like heaven, not hell. Right. And here you go. It's very reasonable. Of course, any reasonable person that's going to accept this, change their mind and, and this will be, but, but the Pentecostal in me and, and maybe the Pentecostal in you goes, it's not really the argument as much as it's the spirits work upon us. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think right? those, those are two, what's important is to realize when we're talking about the spirits work, that's an utterly different category. Like than the argument, maybe the spirit works yeah. with argument and maybe not like, yeah. like I think, and this is where we go so wrong with evangelism, apologetics, discipleship, pastoral counseling, church discipline, political engagement, all of the stuff with culture wars. We think that God's work is dependent upon us doing the work a certain way. Mm-hmm. Right. Like I, I need to make the exactly right argument because the spirit won't be able to convince your heart of the truth if I don't articulate the truth a particular way or, right. you know, and fill in the blank across all the examples. But the truth of the matter is the spirit's a lot more creative than that. <laughs> like yeah. some of the most formative, I, I'm, I'm getting ready to teach a preaching class in the fall. And the last time I taught it, one of the things I talked to them about is realize that the, the work of the spirit and the work of the preacher are never simply identical. They're always related, but they're never. Mm, yeah. 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 Which means that sometimes the spirit will be able to form people by what you get wrong. Right. Because some, and I I know like in my own life, some of the sermons that have been most impactful for me in a good way were sermons that were absolute disasters. Mm -hmm. But what happened to me in the moment of hearing it was, I know that's not true. This is what God is like. But the contrast actually helped me. Right. Yeah. 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 To hear, like, one of the examples that I go to a lot is I heard a sermon, the title of the sermon was God is in Control, and it was a whole sermon about how God controls everything that happens in our lives, and so we don't need to be afraid. And, like, that was a decisive moment for me, because I realized I don't believe that, 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 or that, but I don't know that I would have ever been able to find other language if I didn't have something to disagree with. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's wrong. That being said, of course, as a preacher, your job is never to try to be wrong so that right. people can learn from it, right? You're yeah. trying to play as well as you can. Which the good which, news is the spirit's not bound by that one way. Which is why I, I is an innocent enough thing, but I really can't stand it when a, when a pastor will pray, not my words, but the words of God, as if there is no responsibility yeah, from true. the pastor to be to be diligent. And 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 tireless in what they do preach, yep. right? That it does line up with the work of the Spirit, but with this openness of, but the Spirit's never under my control. Exactly. And that, that even where I do go wrong unintentionally, the Spirit might be able to. And this is why right. I mean, this is again part of the mystery here is what hurts us and what doesn't hurt us. Like there, I think back in my own life, like the most painful things 
that have happened to me, I'm not sure that they were like objectively the worst things that were said to me. It's just they were said by the right person or at the the right the wrong person at the right time or the right, right. person at the wrong time. You know, I was in a particular position. So like part of the mystery of all this is, you know, the way our minds change, the way we're deeply affected by something offended or motivated. Like, I don't think you can measure any of that stuff. I don't think you turn that into data. Like it's some, it's so mysterious, right. And so complicated. And we need to kind of, we don't want to ever underestimate that, but our trust is in the spirit who's always infinitely creative and resourceful enough that we don't need to be afraid of that process either, right? Like we yeah. don't need to be afraid of the fact that there's always so much more going on right? than right. in our own minds and in the minds of other people than we can, we can track. So almost a summate to some degree. While we talked a lot about Clark Pinnock changing his mind, right? Maybe the better way is to talk about the formation of Clark Pinnock throughout his life to spirit. be open to be that, to that change by the spirit, which he's a very spirit, as we talked about, very spirit oriented theological thinker and writer and right. Which for me, I think helps give language to the theological turns that I've made, right? Yeah. Some really basic theological turns to some kind of more really formative theological turns. Again, I can point back to the arguments today, but if I were to sit down and go, why do I hold to this? Like when was the moment, you know, I, I can't necessarily explain it. And I don't try to anymore because I go, it doesn't really matter at this point, maybe when it happened as much as I know I've been formed to yep. be this way. Right? right. And I think that's the difference between an explanation and a confession of faith. Right. So mm -hmm. I think what we have to do with, Clark is we can't explain like we can explore possible reasons as we did you know maybe he's as I said maybe he's put off by the spirit of the right. who are around him but then that just moves the question one step back why is he put off by it when he himself mm. had acted in that way so he wasn't always put off by it right. so what happened well standing where I'm standing believing what I believe about God my read has to be well the spirit converted him right right spirit shaped him to be more like Jesus. And that's why he moved away from those people because right. that, the spirit that they operate in is not the spirit of Jesus. Right. But that's a faith claim. Yeah. That's not an explanation. Right. No. Like that's, that's a note. Cause I, I can't, and I don't think we can provide explanation because I think we're, we're talking about what Austin Ferrar calls the causal joint between God's work and our work. We don't know what that is. Like we don't mm. know what is it that connects the work of the spirit with my own choice, my own freedom, my own agency? Like I can't access that. It's, it's mysterious. Right. I trust that God is never violating me, never pulling levers behind the curtain, never making me, he's not controlling me. Right. But there's still free agency to some degree. Absolutely. Absolutely. Maybe. But that's again, a claim of faith. I can't right. articulate that beyond that I want that to be true. And I think it needs to be true. And I think it is true if the gospel is true, but all of those, th those are, those aren't explanations. So, so almost to end here to go back to that early question, which will be reframed. How does one go through a change of mind? Yeah. 
which maybe is a better question that we didn't even really get to. But if I can sum it maybe and just go, maybe here's at least a thought process. And it's really basic, but it's being open to be changed mm-hmm. in our exploration of reading of texts, listening of sermons, uh, experiences that we go through and the work of God in our lives that is sometimes mysterious and sometimes hits us in the face. Mm-hmm. And it's just being open to those things. Which maybe if we were a bit more open, there would be a bit less of the errands in the world fighting on Facebook about something, right? <laughs> and that would be good. Not, and not that would be good. Facebook, but less fighting. Yeah. Well, I think there's less less errands in the world because my name's too popular as it is. Let's change some names, right? Uh, Chris, I, I think that was awesome. Helpful for me. Helpful, hopefully, for some of the listeners especially those who are processing and maybe in the process of being changed and didn't have the language to talk about it. Uh, yeah. Thanks. We'll be, we'll be back soon.